right, and we're live. Well, first of all, Lexi, I want to thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. So Lexi Larson with Spiritless, which is uh, had, well, like all of us had quite a year, but I know is uh, kind of an exciting new development and um, just excited to have her on and really excited about the things that they're doing and uh, want to learn a lot more about it today. So um, so let's jump in. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to start with was, and I've been doing this with a lot, especially the folks that I have a relationship with, is just kind of talk a little bit about how we met. Oh, yeah, sure. So... I actually think, um, if, if memory serves, that I was at, I think I joined the convention, the, the Louisville Convention of Visitors Bureau and went to one of their, um, I think they called it a partner showcase or something like that. And uh, at that that day, I think Lauren was actually there to kind of, and, and what they did at those events, they gave you like a five-minute pitch. Yeah. And uh, I think Lauren pitched Olio slash Lauren Shitwood events okay. at that. And mm-hmm. I Yep, I pitched my company, and then I remember. As a matter of fact, I don't think we really talked. I think she ended up calling me maybe a day or so later and said, "Hey, I liked your pitch, and I think there's some things you could help us with." Does that ring a bell? That I think that sounds that sounds familiar. Yeah, I think you got it. Good. Yeah, and I think. Um, so tell me. Let me let me just roll back and tell me a little bit about because I know that was kind of I know your previous life in your previous life professionally. Um, what what did I know that there was two sides to the business? There was kind of the the business to business side and sort of a consumer side. Is that a way to think yeah, about it? Yeah. So, so, you know, my current venture spiritless, which, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. There are three female yep. founders, um, to that. So, so we talk a lot about our origination story and where we each came from. Um, what is great about the three of us is we have all worked together in past companies, which, um, some of those include Olio event group and Lauren Chibbett events which yep. brought, brought to light. So, um, you know, Lauren Chitwood Events was a luxury leisure business. Um, and, you know, we kind of rolled that into Olio Event Group, which was a, a corporate events business. And Olio ended up really focusing on um, the beverage and spirits world a little bit because of geography, right? Um, Brown Foreman is, was sort of right in our back door being, being sort of founded and um, having a place of business in Louisville. Um, and then also just our, our contact base just ended up really growing our network in that space. And Abby Ferguson, um, who was on the team there and who's on our team now, um, also came from really strong food and beverage background. So that was the foundation that sort of parlayed into Spiritless because we were working on brands, um, specifically in the beverage space. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. No. So, so tell me a little bit more about that. Like I remember I hadn't really talked to you in a while. We reconnected. It was really, you know, right at the beginning, right just before COVID hit. And uh, you had kind of reached out to me and said, Hey, I've made the transition uh, to spiritless. And then we worked on some things initially, but could you tell me a little bit about how it came about? Yeah, of course. So, you know, working for, um, you know, all of these large spirit brands, what we what we did and what our role was for them and why they hired us was to come alongside and be sort of their integrated marketing team. So we would take a brand that maybe needed a little help or that had a big event coming up that historically maybe hadn't had the sort of the action or the, the um, you know, the ROIs that they were looking for and kind of breathe new life into it. Um, shake it up, kind of take it away from the, the home brand team, um, give our creative edge and kind of hand it back, which, which was um, really fruitful for them and for us. And, um, you know, I, I think that 
what ended up happening is every time we would do these, these events, whether it be a wine brand or a spirit brand, obviously a key part of the event was serving the beverage, right? Trial. They wanted the consumer, the trade, whomever to try the beverage. And every stinking time at the 11th hour, we would get a call from the brand manager. Hey, Lauren, Lexi, Abby, is there any way, you know, we need something non-alcoholic. It can't be tea. It can't be uh, soda. We don't want it to be tonic and lime for the millionth time. But all these people who aren't drinking, what can we do? Could you call celebrity chef XYZ and have them make a tincture da, 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 and batch it for 5,000? I was like, whoa. Yeah. And that happened over and over and over again. And it also was happening for us in our leisure events. Um, as well, um, you know, birthdays and weddings and, and conferences and things like that. We were having to check that box, um, hosting and, and all the ways that we used to host. And I think, um, it, you know, it was literally, there's one moment that I, that I talk about when people ask me, you know, when, when did you decide to leap and leave behind something that you've been working on for years and kind of move into the next, the next phase. And we had literally just finished a really tough event. It was tough for a lot of reasons. The client was not particularly appreciative for all of the, you know, the work and, and the kind of the extras we threw in. It had really bad weather, which just meant like we had to pull all the, the rain triggers. You have to pull when it's really bad weather. Um, you know, they had, they had maybe not listened to a couple of our advisements about staffing appropriately for the event. And we all had ended up, you know, serving and clearing, which is fine. We're not, we're happy to roll up our sleeves, but it was just like, man, it was a rough one. Um, we had a really long drive home and we were all kind of like, man, how do we, how do we get off this hamster wheel of being a, a firm that's a service provider? Because there was not a way that we could we could see for the three of us to step away and for the business to make money without us, right? You can sub out a lot of the things we were doing, but the creative piece, the heartbeat of what we were doing, was really from our um, from our brains and our and our and our creative and our contacts. It was that was just not something that could continue on without us. So anyway, we had this harebrained idea. Man, who better to solve this problem than the three of us? Um, we understand how to market beverage. We understand what all the big guys are up against when it comes to, to talking about beverage. Um, and we're also three women who work our asses off and have, you know, eight kids under eight. So we understand the getting up early, getting to your spin class, going to work, um, coming home, grabbing a quick shower, putting a kid to bed, heading back out to do the happy hour, coming back home, putting dinner on the table for the older kids. I mean, it's just a grind, rinse and repeat, get up, hit a flight. And, and to be able to be social and hit the business center at a happy hour and then have to do that again, it's just not sustainable if you're foolproof all the time. Um, so we were also three people who were the perfect uh, consumer who needed this product. So I think we felt like better than, better than anybody we could think of, we were perfectly positioned, you know, to, to tee this thing up and give it a go. So we, we said, all right, on that drive home, we said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to hit the gas. We're going to pretend like this thing is going to go. And if all the doors open that need to open to make this transition easy, then, you know, done deal. And man, it all worked out. We, we were able to get a sublease for our big, office, we were able to hand off some key clients to some really good providers that went really smoothly. It fell into place. 
um, which was just, you know, it was meant to be. Not to mention getting out of the special event space right before COVID hit was also a nice kicker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a little serendipity there. It's funny. It is. Um, I've always, it's, it, you mentioned basically scaling agencies and that is just so yeah. difficult uh, to, really it's difficult to scale any any business that's just really dependent on super talented people, especially yeah. when those people are the owners. And yeah, um, yeah so that, that's interesting. So, um, and man, yeah, great timing on the event stuff. And then I, I remember by your offices and, and uh, it doesn't surprise me you found somebody who wanted those. Those were, that yes, was they were, they were special. So, so we're, we're, we're glad that they found a good home. Yeah. Well, talk, talk me through. So once you make the decision, you want to do this, um, of course, we're in, you know, the bourbon capital of the world. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get to the conversation about, you know, non-alcoholic bourbon and how, how that's been, how that was initially. But so tell me a little bit about like the name and why the bourbon product and just a little bit, you know, what is falling into place kind of look like? Yeah. In- yeah. So, I mean, I think what was, um, th- what was easy for us to figure out is, okay, we need a name, we need a brand, we need, um, you know, we need some beautiful design, we need a website, we need, you know, an Instagram handle. All of that was 101 for us. We had done it for other people. We knew it well. Um, what, what we hadn't maybe done as a team is, is an actual consumer product, much less a food and beverage product. Um, and you're exactly right. We're in Kentucky, you know, no better place to, to really sort of attack and think about bourbon. Um, you know, so, so the first thing we did is, is really dive deep into the competitive landscape. Who, where, why, when is anybody touching non-alcoholic spirits? Um, who is it? How are they doing? How have they done? What did they do wrong? Right. Um, et cetera. And, and what we found, and, and we sort of um, incorporated October of 2019, so we've been at this a little over a year now. And when we first started in October of 2019, you know, there was a pretty big um, push in um, the United Kingdom for gin alternatives. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, obviously, that's, you know, that's a big drinking culture there. They also had some really interesting tax incentives for non-alcoholic spirits. Um, one of the big non-alcoholic spirits that you, you know, if if you had, you know, deeply, um, you know, searched to the ends of Google that you would have known about is a, is a company called Seedlip. They were, um, you know, they were founded in, in, in London. It ended up coming to the States when um, Diageo took a hold of it. But, you know, I think largely there was a huge hole in that there was no brown water as in there was no dark spirits. And, um, there was also a huge hole in that when we spoke to people who were either consuming or were, were bar and restaurant programs who were utilizing the existing non-out spirits, which we're really going to talk about gens because that's kind of where it was at the time. Um, they were using them as a floater. And so what that means is I would make my cocktail and I would pour an ounce or two on top because what I was getting was really only aromatic. So it was a, it was a sensory experience only for your nose. So there was, there's tricks there and what that does to your palate from a taste perspective, but essentially the, the non-alc spirits that existed were not affecting texture or um, giving you sort of that that tannic experience that you have when you drink, you know, wine or a spirit, um, and so that's really what we knew we had to solve differently than anybody else out there. The other thing we found was, generally speaking, ninety nine percent of the brands out there 
who are distilled, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, but they're using distilled water and adding flavoring from a flavor house. So they're going, okay, I take a gallon of water, I'm gonna put a drop of juniper, I'm gonna put a drop of sage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, stirring it up and, and bottling it. And, and um, you know, the problem with that is people are saying it's tasting like water because it's mostly water. Um, so right. obviously it's going to taste mostly like water. And, the, and listen, nobody can can replicate the, the sensory experience of ethanol uh, in the sense that it, it almost paralyzes your palate, especially for those first few sips. And I think about, you know, that Kentucky hug you get when you take that first sip of yep. your bourbon. It's it's almost, it kind of puts you back in your seat a little bit. And, and by the time you get to that third or fourth sip, you know, you, your palate has acclimated and that, that sort of paralyzation of the palate has dimmed away and you can start to enjoy the subtler notes, um, the caramel, the oak, the citrus, things like that start to stand out to you more. And that's, um, you know, those are the, the things that we wanted to focus on is, how could we make something feel and taste like your third or fourth sip after that initial kind of um, shock wore off your system? So uh, we, you know, we really started in my basement um, with uh, a jerry-rigged uh, pot still. So I literally had uh, a, a sous vide and a stock pot and a hot plate and some PVC pipes that I, uh, used a, a sub pump and a, and a cooler with an ice bath. I mean, it was duct taped, no joke. I and, trust you got pictures of that. Oh yes, I have pictures <laughs> of that. Uh huh. It is um, it is that sort of basement or garage moment that I think that you know a lot of a lot of founders talk about. It's important for a lot of reasons. For us, we learned so much. <laughs> knowing knowing what we know now, I know that I could have blown up my house doing that. Right? I did not have proper vapor <laughs> control. Um, so thank God, thank God that it that it didn't cause us any issues. But it, you know, we learned a lot about what we didn't want, which is important. Um, what wasn't working, and you know, we got to a certain point where, and I'm like embarrassed to even say this, we got to a point with uh, you know our first. Uh, our first sort of product MVP that we actually took it and had some pretty renowned people taste it. Um, and they were, they were the most respectful and courteous and just basically said, you know, you ladies have like, you, you got some road to make up here. Like I see where you're going, but go back to the drawing board. And, and now, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt you. Hang on. I, I do want to ask though, could you give me a little, like, just dive a little deeper into the technical side. Like, what did you do? Like, how, how did you? We were you know, literally, but, yeah. we were literally grabbing uh, foolproof bourbon off a shelf um, or from a wholesale provider and trying okay. to really, really gingerly strip the alcohol away. And okay. and our our hypothesis at the time was and and. and you know, we, we know more now. At the time, we thought, well, if we're just if we if we're really gentle, right, and we use low heat, but we use it long enough, maybe we can, without scalding or burning or scorching any of these flavor notes, just very gently remove the alcohol. Um, and what you would be left with in, in this scenario, we hoped, would be all the flavors of bourbon sans alcohol. Um, so the concept, in simple terms, was basically try to get rid of the alcohol through yeah. heat so through application of heat yeah. yeah and then try and then in, in, you know, in a perfect world on the other side you basically keep everything right. that was great except right. the alcohol okay right. okay right 
Um, and, and again, that, that whole exercise was a, was a failure and that it didn't get us where we wanted to go, but it was a success and that it, we understood what wasn't going to work. Um, and so, you know, we got to a point where, um, we said, okay, it's time to engage, uh, some real professionals here who understand beverage architecture, who understand distilling in a really modern way. Um, we did a couple of things. Uh, we obviously talked to every distillery we could, talked to every master distiller we could, every co-manufacturer who distilled that we could. Um, and what I'll say is two things. One is 99% of the time, these people were incredibly um, helpful and and gracious with their time and, and talking to what I'm sure they thought were three crazy ass women, like going down some harebrained idea that had no legs. Um, but you know, there, we did run into, uh, you know, the grumpy old man who was like, you bitches are crazy. What do you, <laughs> what do you mean you're making non-alcoholic bourbon? Who the hell is going to buy that? I mean, it was like out of a, out of a, a comedy or something. And, and, um, it, it was just a really interesting experience, but by and large, you know, outside of the people who were just hating to hate, most people really didn't think it was possible for the same reason that what I was doing in my basement was not working. It wasn't working and that the flavor wasn't great. It also wasn't working because I couldn't get it to a level that I could legally sell it as non-alcoholic. That last couple percentage points of alcohol were hanging out and I could not strip it. And, and that is basic science. It does tell us that at a certain point, it's hard for you to really get off those last remaining ethyls and esters. Um, and, and again, that's, it's all part of how our process evolved and changed. But Essentially, what we were left with at that time was a really weak, uh, kind of burnty, charred, um, oaky flavoring that just wasn't really anything. Um, and so what we did was we found um, an amazing chemical engineer who had had a great career at Diageo. She had she had left them a couple years prior and had basically become um, you know, her own sort of freelancer that companies would hire all over the globe to help them with whatever their distillery problem was. Um, and so we, we grabbed her from, uh, from Switzerland. She was on a project. She hightailed it here and she dove in. And, and it's important to note, I think, not that being young and being a woman made the difference for us in hiring her, but what I think that it allowed more easily was for her to pull up from all of the tradition and the hundred years of, of folklore and bullshit that, that bourbon is. And I, and I love bourbon for that, right? That's why we all love it is there's storytelling and there's, um, there's heritage there. Um, but, but she was able to pull up enough to go, okay, if this isn't technically going to have the exact same mash bill and the exact same process, there's no reason for us to put ourselves in a box of bourbon from how we, how we look at how we problem solve that. And so she was one of the first people that said, okay, let's back up for a second. We know what we want to end with, but the path to get there has to draw outside the lines of what everybody knows, you know, to be the process of making bourbon. And that, that was a game changer for us. So basically we, we've landed on a process that starts with a corn based grain neutral spirit. So think about like a really high proof white dog, Mm -hmm. um, or a moonshine, something that's clear and basically, basically flavorless. Um, and then we put American oak, uh, with three different varieties, um, in our, in our pot still. And we, 
Uh, we put it through a process that's much like a Rick House. If you've ever been on a bourbon tour, which I'm sure you have, um, yep. you know, th- what happens over four years in that Rick House is that the Kentucky weather kind of pulses and pulls that that liquid in and out of the barrel, right? Like it's breathing based yep. on the temperature. Um, and that oscillation um, in and out is what really gives it its character. Um, and that's why time is so important, right? And so basically what we do is we accelerate that process by by oscillating pressure um, and heat in our pot still to sort of mimic in a really high frequency that four-year process over the course of a couple hours, half a day. Um, and that essentially gives us, if you could imagine, a quadruple oat bourbon. So something yeah. with all of the bourbon characters, but in so much intensity that it can withstand the second part of our process, which is the reverse distillation, um, where we put that quadruple oaked bourbon, if you will, um, into our second pot still, and we reverse distill, meaning we we run a distillation process that cooks off and pulls up all the esters and the ethyls on one side, but leaves in our pot all of those incredible flavor notes that we get from, from the different varietals of oak that we've chosen. And that's, you know, that gets us to a non-alcoholic level, but it, because we have increased the flavor on the front end, we get enough carryover that the palate is balanced um, like it was in the beginning, which is, you know, which is a huge learning for us. Um, and you know, there's, there's a variety of other really fun things I could talk about. We are patent pending. So, uh, legal tells me that I, that I should stick with, with that story and leave out a couple kind of little secret sleight of hand things until that, until that's pushed through. But, um, you know, we are, we are constantly tweaking or constantly optimizing that process. Um, product improvement is a huge priority for us. We will always be pushing the envelope there. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, uh, kind of where we landed. That is a lot more technical than I anticipated. Yeah, and, uh, it is. It is technical <laughs> to say the least. And I'm probably not the, the the right person to ask to for like the uh, the the sort of consumer facing story, just because I'm so in it, um, you know, in my role that I can sometimes get bogged down in the nitty gritty. Well, it's still really interesting, though. I mean, I, I do think too. I remember when you and I I remember us having a conversation early on back in March, and I because I'm a bourbon guy, but you know, so it's like I'm like. I had to wrap my head around the idea of non-alcoholic I bourbon. I remember I said to you, I was like, and, and I think you mentioned it a second ago, sort of that, you know, that burn at whatever level that is such a part yeah. of a bourbon. And then you, you know, you drink it neat and you get the, you said it, you called it the Kentucky hug. And, and uh, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, and, and even, I think you mentioned it also that like, there's all this traditionalist uh, sort of approach yeah. in that industry. And, um, but yeah, so, I mean, no, are you? I'm curious. How are you? Are you guys? And I don't know if you want to share this or not. But I mean, contract producing it. Do you have? Or did yes. you set up your own production? How, how yes. are you actually? That's a great question. That's a great question. So you know, this first product, this um, this bourbon product, it's called Kentucky Seventy Four, and a lot of people ask us how we got that name. Um, and and you know, I, I could get into it, but essentially, the the Seventy Four came from you know the first part of our journey when we we really thought we were going to have to manufacture this ourselves. We we're going to have to build a distillery. Um, we were in process to be the 74th distillery in the state. That was going to be our DSP number. Got it. Uh, so that kind of stuck. Um, that journey was really impactful for us and, and it means a lot. And so I think moving forward, you know, as we look to introducing other spirits uh, to the non-alcoholic spirit space, 
you know, I think that I think that consumers are going to see us use geography and numerology to kind of identify our different products. You know, obviously we can't call ourselves a, a bourbon on our label um, for for a variety of reasons, but mostly because we re, you know we respect bourbon and and you know there's there's strict guidelines about what is and isn't a bourbon, right? Um, so although I would say I, I do want to point out that I do find it interesting. That you're right. There are strict requirements on what isn't mm-hmm. is not urban. However, they have also embraced secondary aging. They have embraced secondary aging, and- which would technically make those things like not a bourbon. Things like Angel's Envy and things like that. Where now I love the product, but I mean that's a right. Am I right about that? You are right about that. There have been, and and I will listen. I've got friends in the industry and all different brands, and I, I would never name drop. But there, the 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 boundaries. Um, around that definition have been stretched. And I, you know, as somebody who loves a lot of really entrenched heritage brands, I think it's great. I love to see ingenuity and creative problem solving happen there. There's a lot of technology that's that's coming into just how you control temperature in your rick house, how you filter. How you, there's just, there's lots happening. Um, and it's been happening for a lot longer than I think I even understood once I kind of got into it. But um, but yes, you you are correct in that it's getting it, it is fuzzy. The line is fuzzy for sure. Sure. Um, tell me a little bit about how you. I mean, obviously, putting together a talented team and and getting yeah. something started from scratch is not cheap. Um, yeah. Just just give me, give me a little bit about how you went about you know raising money and and you know go as deep as you'd like. But I mean, I know there's yeah. a lot of people that I mentioned to you. I think early on that like starting a business is expensive. And, uh, it is. It is. It's, expe- it's especially expensive when you have to have some assets to really get started. This was not something where we were providing a service and we could sort of really bootstrap it from the start and kind of snowball into the next echelon. It's also not something you can do slowly. We knew really early on fundraising was going to be a huge piece of this business. Um, you know, I think we were not naive to, to, to really understand that to have a national and global consumer product, um, you, it's going to be capital intensive. It will continue to be capital intensive for the duration of, you know, the length of the three founders time in the business, however short or long that may end up being depending on, you know, exits and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think a couple of things we did and I think that they're important for other people to be thinking about. One is, and the three of us all have skin in the game. When we started this, we didn't have a product yet. Um, we had an idea and a dream. Uh, we all closed the doors on our various other ventures and really went 100% in. And we put capital on the table. And I think that's important for a lot of reasons. I think it's important if you're going to fundraise for the for people who are investing to understand you have skin in the game. Um that's a great point. I, I just want to say, yeah. I, mean, I think, yeah, I think if, if someone were coming to me asking me to put money into a company, it would certainly certainly mean a lot to me if I saw right out of the gate that they Absolutely. had taken. Absolutely, absolutely, and it doesn't. And you know, I think having skin in the game, right? There's a variety of ways that can that can be. I think for us, it was monetary. It was sort of the lack of a kind of a fallback. We weren't we weren't sort of double dipping with other jobs, and we really it was this. Or we were going to have to start over, um, yeah. and I think that that feels that feels good to investors to really understand that this is your number one thing; it is the only thing. Um, so that, yeah. that that was helpful, um, I think for sure. So you know, we got a certain amount of runway from the capital we put in as founders, and that got us so far. Um, and you know, how you have to look at it is you have to say, okay, if, if this is what I have, if this is my 
you know, my account, my, my, my balance that I have to, to get me so far? What do I need to be able to prove to the next guy I can accomplish um, and why I need his money, her money, their money? Um, and so, you know, we wrote out that plan, you know, that's, that's kind of how you start your business plan of, okay, the next two months, three months, year, whatever it is, this is what we got to get done, um, you know, to get to that next round. And so we did a lot. Um, and I think that now knowing what I know, we were incredibly nimble. We continue to be nimble, but we were also incredibly cost effective in doing all the things we did. We got our website, we got our name, we got our branding, we got our MVP product and samples. We did press kits. Um, we, ha- I mean, we were. And, like, and a lot of what you just mentioned there was accomplished with sort of founder seed money. Yeah, it, it, founder yeah. seed and sweat. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was. And, and you know, I will say too, we continue to be really um, efficient with our marketing dollars because of where we came from. We were handling other people's marketing budgets, and so we know a lot of the the workarounds or what what agency fees you need to pay for and what's bullshit and what there's sure. just a, there's just a lot of that that we are we are incredibly lean when it comes to marketing spend which you know at the nuts and bolts of this this is a marketing company right we have a product that we're proud of but it's about it's about getting it out there and so being really um, you know really buttoned up in that perspective was incredibly helpful so one thing I wanted to I, I think this is a really interesting point I wrote down a note that I thought it was interesting that you said the decision to raise was based on, you know, essentially two factors. One is, you know, you had speed, you had to do it fast and you knew that it was going to be capital intensive up front. Yeah. And it, I think that's an interesting point because these days the world we're living in, I think everybody just assumes the way it works is have an idea and go start asking for money. Listen, what people have to understand is that everybody has ideas. All of us, all of us sit there on the couch and go, man, this is, this would be a great product or a great service or a great business. Okay. Awesome. You know, you may have one of those a week and I'm not, I'm not devaluing an idea because ideas are great, but execution is 100% of success. The idea is totally worthless without the execution story, which is why, um, you know, you can, you can almost, and, and, and I mean, I'm sure you can think about some, think of, think about some companies where, there's five or six of them that maybe did well that do basically the same thing, but there were probably hundreds, right. That kind of were on the same track, transportation, food delivery, um, uh, syntax, editing software. There are things that have had iteration after iteration. And there's a couple guys who kill it based on execution, but the idea to get in a vehicle and get somewhere with somebody else driving or have food delivered to you or editing your words, you type in, those ideas are not, are not, you know, Einstein ideas, right? It's how you make the customer experience it and how you, how the user experiences, how you hear about it, all those things. That's what makes it work. Right. Um, yeah. And, and the idea of putting skin in the game and, and going out and proving something so that when you go to investors or you go to, whether that's friends or family or, you know, formal investors, institutional investors, whatever it is, that once you get there, you're not just pitching an idea. You're saying, you know, here's an idea. And oh, by the way, you know, here's the results that we've had with X Capital. And, you know, that makes the case for if we have, you know, 5x that capital, then we can have 5x the results or whatever it is. That's exactly right. Um, exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing with, with you know, knowing you're going to take on capital is starting conversations early, way before you even are, are in a place where you need that capital, which I know sounds intuitive. But what what I think is so important is to be able to say, Hey, potential investor XYZ or dad or whoever it is, right? At that sure. moment, sister-in-law, whoever you're going to ask for capital, 
this is my plan for the next whatever period of time and circle back and say, all right, this was my plan. I told you 30 days ago, I've, I've accomplished all the things on the plan. I ran into a problem here. Here's how I solved it. Having communication and proving to somebody over a period of time that you do what you're going to, that you do what you say you're going to do. Right. And that when a problem came up, you know, you were able to navigate it and here's how. Um, and I think that, that giving yourself a little time to show that person that you're executing is really important um, outside of just saying, here, look, I had this money. This is what I did. You know, you know, pat yeah. back. it's about really, you know, showing that, that you can, that you can sort of hang on to that trend moving forward. I had a friend of mine that was involved in a company that I think ended up raising about $8 million. And I remember telling him, I said, you know, to me, the startup space seems like you're either reporting the story or telling the story. And yeah. I meant, by that simply that if you were reporting it, you were trying to make it look good when you met with your investors, as opposed to just showing them what's happening. And, you know, yeah. it just, everything was good. And um, yeah. And so have you found I'm curious, have you found it challenging to, you know, I remember talking to him and he said, you know, it's basically like having another mark, a group that you have to market to, you know, oh, when you have yeah. a group of investors, has that, has that been challenging, you know, while also trying to challenging isn't even a word that like comes and and listen what i'll say is we we got to the place where we were ready to pull the trigger and formally begin fundraising and that was probably on a monday where it was like okay our our deck is really in a good place our performance is really in a good place we have the data to back it up um, you know, we're, we're prepared with due diligence paperwork ready to go for anybody to kind of sniff us out and, and really look us up and down from a financial perspective and do everything we wanted to do. And, and literally I remember sitting in that meeting going, okay, all right, check, check, check. We've done this. We've done that. I think we're ready. And somebody looked on their phone and, you know, there was a, there's a pretty big article about COVID-19 and I literally looked at my co-founders and I, I'm pretty sure I said, listen, as long as it doesn't get to the U.S., we're going to be okay. And by that Friday, it was like everything had just been buckled down. I remember talking to a friend of oh. mine whose son turned 16 years old, and he said, I, I will never forget this. I was sitting on a Friday morning at, at Heine Brothers Coffee, and he said, Dylan's decided he wants to go to March Madness. And he looked at me, and he said, and I think this was sometime in February, he said, Landon, do you, you think there's any chance they'll cancel that tournament? I remember looking at him, I said, you think this is going to get bad enough? They're going to cancel March Madness? Yeah. I mean, that's where we all were. It was like, come on. Like, it's news. It's whatever. No way is it going to affect us. But, I mean, yeah. And boy, were we freaking wrong. Exactly. So, you know, that that real shutdown happened. Um, and, you know, I, we really, um, I mean, to be honest, Landon, the three of us really took a week. And we just said, Let, let's take a week. Let's back away. Let's uh, let's see what's going to happen here. And I think it was a couple things. I think we didn't know if it was even possible to raise money without being able to leave our houses um, right. without, without investors taking meetings. Because traditionally, right, you hop on a plane, yep. you fly to San Francisco, you fly to New York, you whatever, you knock on doors, you walk in, you do the pitch, you know, you leave them the paperwork, and hopefully they call you back. You know, that's kind of what happens here for a, for a true startup. Um. And the, the whole Skype Zoom thing wasn't really, there was travel involved. It, this was not a, an electronic exchange of communication. Um, and so to be honest, like our first thought was like, you know, we're screwed. Um, and so that week we really just had to decide, it was sort of spoken and unspoken, 
that we just had to decide like, what are we going to do? Are we abandoning ship? Are we moving forward? What does forward look like? Do we, do we kind of scale back operations to like the bare minimum and, and stretch our, our cash burn to get as far as we can to hopefully have this thing blow over? Um, and, and the good news and, and what's so valuable about, you know, my co-founders is that we really all kind of got to the same spot, which is like, we have to go, we have to go now and we have to go freaking fast. And hopefully the silver lining in this COVID thing is that we're going to, we're going to get uh, an extra foot up on any competition who's got their tail between their legs right now. Um, and that's what we did. We slammed on the gas. And that does not mean that fundraising suddenly like kicked into gear and was killer. I mean, it took a while. Um, And and I think that it's going to continue to take a while until this thing is over. But um, yeah, we just have been fortunate that, um, you know, for every, for every no and no thanks, it's one step closer to a yes. And every time, um, you know, we're just so, we're so grateful for it. So yeah. Let, let me transition to, so I, I'm somewhat familiar with how you sell an alcoholic beverage. I mean, the model in, in general terms is, you know, through distributors, but you're non-alcoholic. So does it, I assume yeah. it lifts you out of a lot of the regulation and the typical yes, model. Talk, talk, talk me through that a little bit. Yeah, that is really when I think people start to get um, excited about the space. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a couple things here. The, the three-tier system of distribution for beverage alcohol is um, very intense. If if anybody listening is, has been involved in that process any step of the way, you understand the regulation, the pass through from three different hands. That's required no matter what. And then you know that's that's a federal mandate. And then state state uh, laws that regulate who and where and why you can sell what type of alcohol and what type of store for what time frame. It is um, it is a lot. Um, there are distributors that have you know, different levels of presence, whether it be, you know, really hyper local, whether it be regional or national. Um, and it's just complicated. It is really complicated um, and also very costly. So what was really important to us was to be able to be non-alcoholic legally. And what that means is you have to have under 0.5% alcohol. So we're talking a super ripe banana, a yeast roll, soy sauce. Those are things that are non-alcoholic, but technically contain the same amount of alcohol as Kentucky 74. Um, All of those things can be sold anywhere, Uh, can also be shipped anywhere, which is a huge piece of it. And it was incredibly important for us to maintain that um, alcohol by volume level, ABV, so that we could direct to consumer during COVID ship one bottle at a time anywhere in the United States. Um, and that's what we've done. And that has been really always the plan for, for a huge channel for us, a sales channel. But I think when COVID hit, we went, okay, it's going to be a hundred percent of our sales plan for the short term is shipping these bottles, you know, one at a time to, to our customers because, you know, on-premise is suffering, um, you know, restaurants and bar programs are, are, you know, scraping by as it is. How, who are we to go pitch our new product to them when, when, you know, they're, they're just trying to keep their doors open. Yeah. So it's been a, it's been a great, uh, it's been a great thing and we're, we're definitely um, thankful for it. And um, you know, it's, it's great to be able to touch people all over the nation, even when we're kind of stuck at home. So is direct to consumer the primary channel at the moment? It is. It is. Although I'll tell you, um, 
we've been really fortunate in that even when we weren't pursuing retail or on-premise accounts, they have really pursued us. Um, and, you know, we literally, I mean, we joke, we literally had um, a national retailer slide into our DMs <laughs> on Instagram and ask for a, for a national contract, which is incredible. Um, well, now, so, we, so in those cases, let me just jump in and ask this. Yeah. So like, because of the model being different, when you start selling into retail and, you know, liquor stores, et cetera, I mean, you're cutting out some middlemen, right? Yeah. I mean, the margins so are better. And There are, there are a ton of uh, national chains and, and local spots that will go direct, meaning from my door to their door and nobody in between, which means more money for them and more money for us, right? Because sure. we, don't have to, we don't have to pencil out something first for the middleman. You're exactly right. Um, and so, yeah, for a lot of these guys, it's been, okay, great. You come pick it up. You distribute it yourself, just like you distribute whatever else. And you get to keep a little bit more and we get to keep a little bit more and everybody's yeah. happy. Feels a little bit like Tesla. That's, that's what Elon Musk yeah. is doing. <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah. He, he builds it and sells it directly to me yeah. and cuts everybody else out. Yeah. That's, yeah. uh, no, that, that's interesting. So then are you basically regulated like a drink like a like a food or drink product more so so we we are regulated exactly like any anything you buy at a grocery store um which is which is interesting right you know a little bit of nuance in our process is that one of our ingredients to start with is you know a controlled substance and that it's alcohol right and that's regulated by the ttb so we have to be ttb compliant just like an alcohol producer but once i'm in a bottle and i'm packaged I'm only, you know, the only jurisdiction above me is no longer the TTB at all. It's entirely the FDA. So, you know, we do have a nutrition panel on the back of our bottle, which you don't see on a traditional spirit bottle because they're sure. not regulated by the FDA. Um, so there's, you know, there's some nuance there. And, and, you know, that's who, you know, we have to make sure that we're up to their safety and regulatory yeah. standards. Um, so it's, it's interesting because we sort of have to, we have to pacify both um, both institutions and that is a hurdle and there are not many people that understand how to do both. So that, that took a lot of time to figure out how do we please both parties and, and be really buttoned up? Um, cause some things are contradictory. And so that was hard to navigate. Sure. A lot of yeah, no, <laughs> a lot that, of that makes sense. I can only imagine. I, I, I talked to a, I don't know if you know, Paul Heinzman and the guys uh, over at saltwater Woody, but you know, they are an alcohol product. And so I talked to him a little bit about that and he was telling me just how, in their space, and you know this, it's mm -hmm. different by state, he said. So, I mean, it's even, you know, it is. very, very yeah. complex. You've, yeah. you've got to really have somebody who knows what they're doing to kind of help you navigate that. Well, so I know early on, I remember you reached out to me. And, and so now I just kind of want to move into, Yeah. I mean, obviously, I think you guys have done a phenomenal job with the marketing and, and you've gotten tons of PR. I mean, I, I know I see articles and when I did my research a little bit, you know, I was seeing a lot of the different PR type things that you guys have done. So, you know, I assume you're handling that internally and obviously have done very well with we that. Have, we have amazing PR partners who are so good to us. Um, and, you know, I think also we have something that's really cool to talk about. And so, you know, we've been, we've, we've just been really grateful for all the, all the yeah, it's, attention. It's a great story. And, and it's so what, you know, we talked early on and I think we did, you know, you had contacted me and, and said, Hey, I'm, you know, in the market for, some swag. And I yeah. think initially we did some hats, some t-shirts, yeah. we did a tote bag. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about just, you know, talk about how you, you see swag being used, you know, yeah. how you use those things and then kind of how you see it being used going forward as you guys continue to grow sales. Absolutely. Well, I think, 
I think one thing that, that we know, and I don't know if we've really touched on this yet, is that our brand, Spiritless as a brand, is a lifestyle brand. Um, and part of being a lifestyle brand, um, you know, is certainly having ways for your consumers to feel like they're integrated and have touch points. And so that's, that's done in a variety of ways, but, but certainly one of those is, um, you know, point of sale stuff and also merch. So we actually, um, we sell a lot of merch on our website, right in line with our, with our products. So you can buy a bottle, you can buy a t-shirt, a hat, you can buy a branded Yeti, you can buy a tote bag. Um, all of that's important. Um, it's especially important too, for us, you know, when we talk about on-premise accounts, you know, we want, uh, we want restaurants to have things that they can set out and about that are touch points for those consumers to go, Oh, there's this coaster. I'm, you know, it's sitting on at my seat. I'm flipping around my fingers. What's spiritless, you know, and, and it's, it's a question mark. It's a, it's a moment. Um, I think somebody today was talking about you know, what percentage of people walk into a store, walk into a bar, knowing exactly what they're going to order to drink or eat. Um, and most of us, if you've been there, uh, you know, many times maybe we have something we know we want, but most of us want to look over that menu. And so having something out on the table is really impactful to say, Oh, okay. What's that? Right. Which is why you see coasters and menu cards and things like that really call out brands. So it, we knew it would be important. I think that we didn't understand how important until we really went live, especially with, you know, selling, um, you know, selling some of this stuff. It's also a pretty dang powerful revenue stream. If I was being honest, you know, I mean, uh, we know that that's true for our musician friends, right? Who a huge revenue stream for them is their t-shirts and their posters, right? That's where they go on tour because that's where they make their real money. It's not actually in, in buying their albums. And, you know, all I can say is the amount of t-shirts and tote bags and everything else that we sell and for the margin that, that you can really sell some of that stuff when you have a great provider who's really working to get that cost down for you, it matters. It really matters. Um, I think another thing for us is just, you know, we talk about how complicated our process is, you know, we, we're in and out of stock pretty quickly. Um, you know, we're making this stuff really small batch. It's artisanal. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's laborsome. And so having something that we can sell no matter what, even when we're in and out of stock of our, you know, flagship product is important. It keeps us in communication and being able to have a relationship with our customer, even, you know, if we're going to be out of stock for a second. Yeah, it's. It's the tagline that I've created for the time being for this podcast is exploring the secrets to building great brands and uh, just having conversations like this. And, and, you know, we constantly find, I think I told the story, I, you know, I work out at a place called F45 and I walked in one day and he handed me, you know, Hey, have you, have you gotten a keychain? And I remember, you know, I'm in the business and I'm looking at this keychain and I'm like, I felt special, you know? And I was like, why did I feel special? You know, and I think there's something about the products, what, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, that when you feel a part of something, there's sort of that ability to express that with, you know, with swag. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and I think it's done in a couple of ways. I mean, I know for us it, being able to talk to our customers and, and um, you know, whether that's through social media um, or giving them a call, you know, we see a big order come through, you know, we do, we hop on the phone. We're still able to do that and say, Hey, like I saw you ordered 11 bottles. Tell me, tell me about that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so being able to send these people a little something extra to make them feel special, you know, Hey, Martha, I know we spoke on the phone. I just was thinking about you. I wanted to send you a hat and a tote bag or whatever it is. And then, man, if those people aren't customers for life, 
and brand evangelists for you. Man, I talked to the founders and they sent me to something they were thinking about me. Done. That closes the deal. And I think, um, you know, your, your customer, your user, whatever, whatever you call them in your business, being able to spread the good word for you is the most powerful marketing there is. Absolutely. However you can foster that and swag is a big piece of that. Um, yeah. yeah, you capitalize on it. So I know the, the last couple of things I'll ask you, cause we're, I promised you that I would, I would respect your time and we're oh. up against it. So I know that we provide just a, you know, we, we certainly don't provide everything that you guys do. We've provided some things along the way. And, um, maybe just give me a little bit of, you know, specifically about our company and how we've done yeah. things for you. You know, what have we done well and what, what do you think we can, we could do better? Yeah. So I think, I think you're exactly right. We have a lot of branded things, whether it's like our packaging, um, our inserts, our menu books, there's a bunch that we deal with that has our name on it that we get produced. Um, and, and what I can say is you guys specifically excel in, in a couple of arenas. One is quality. Um, just in general, the providers that you spec and send our way, I, I'm to a point where like I don't even really need a sample. It's like, you know, if, if these guys are telling me that, that this is a, a provider I should think about, I kind of know they've sniffed it out. Um, you're not just sending me randoms, which is awesome. I just kind of know it has the, you know, your, your all's touch on it. So I know it's quality, um, and, and has durability. And then I think also, um, the way that we get to receive, um, you know, sort of potential options, the way that you sort of digitize that. And I'm like, okay, guys, I can, I can, I can screen share in a, you know, in a team meeting and go, okay. Um, you know, these guys sent us the following things. We can all look at it. We can write notes. We can say yes, no, little to the left, like whatever the feedback is all in one spot is really powerful because man, endless email threads and back and forth and printing things off and marking things up. It gets time consuming. And if I just know somebody can just take my feedback and run, it saves me time, which is, you know, obviously the, the no, most valuable thing we've yeah. got. We get a lot of good feedback on that system, and even the inline commenting is something that I think yeah. people really like. And I love is, it, commenting. is there anything that you can think about from our experience? You know, I, I said from the beginning of starting this that you know every company has a desired customer experience, and then there's sort of a delta between what you hope customers experience versus what they actually do. So, yeah. you know, if you can think of something, you know, is there anything that you think we could do better from our experience together? Mm, that's a great question. You know, I think. Um, I think I'd have to think about that. I think, uh, you know, generally speaking, my only feedback would be I'd probably go to you for specific things and not for other specific things. And so it would be interesting to compare notes and go, okay, Landon, I'm coming to you for X, Y, Z and not L, N, O, P. Is that because you don't do it or is that because I don't know you do it? And how can you better communicate that to okay. inbound? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I, and, and it's the way I, what I call it, and I don't know if this is the right way to describe it. I say that the merchandising of our clients is a challenge for us because, you know, most of the time people just don't know all the things that we can do. And, and if we're busy or don't do a good job of communicating that, then, you know, we could have customers that are buying things we could be providing and we just, you know, right. it's not getting an opportunity. So that's, right. that's excellent. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, this has been awesome. I, I am really excited about it. I think it's really neat, very unique. Um, I got my bottle. I do want to just, you know, anybody who's listening to this and, and Lexi, you got to correct me here. If I, I, right now, the primary place, the best place to buy it is at spiritless.com. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And the social media, if you, if they want to follow you on social media, it's at drink spiritless. 
on both Instagram and Facebook. Did I get that right? Yes, that's perfect. Yes, follow away. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, Lexi Larson, thank you. And uh, I appreciate the opportunities that you've given us. And I look forward to helping you going forward. Thank you, Landon. I appreciate the time.